You're listening to Right Where You Are Sitting Now. Hey, welcome to episode 31 of uh, Right Where You're Sitting Now. Uh, it's taken forever for this episode to come out for a multitude of reasons, mainly um, guests pulling out on us. Uh, not today's guest, but a couple of other guests and uh, or rescheduling, I should say. Uh, it's not anyone's fault, really. Uh, but yeah, I'm joined today by the enigmatic Raymond Wiley. Uh, hi, Raymond. Hey, Ken. Yes, that's right. I'm a, a podcasting mystery. You are. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I came on the episode today to help out with the interview with Mitch Horowitz. You know, we were going to talk about the occult and all of this stuff. And the interview went so smooth that I never even got a question in. No, so, I know. <laughs> I felt a bit I bad, I mean, if you're used to me being a total loudmouth, that is not what you're going to get out of this episode. So. No, no. It was, uh, it, I think, um, because I literally just read uh, Mitch's book, <laughs> I think I was, like, loaded up with questions. And uh, Yeah, you absolutely were, man. And this was a great interview, by yeah. the way. It's probably one of my favorites, actually. I think I, I really enjoyed this interview. And, um, but before we uh, talk about that a little bit more, let's uh, go to an advert break. Excuse me, I've got some information I'd like to share with you. Did you know that 26 billion pickles are packed each year in the U.S.? That's about 9 pounds of pickles per person. More than half the cucumbers grown in the U.S. are made into pickles. Hey, pickle boy, let's talk pickles. The Podcast Pickle, that is. The Podcast Pickle is your resource for all the latest and greatest podcasts found in cyberspace with thousands of podcasts listed and more added every day. Here's some of the podcasts that you'll find at podcastpickle.com. <laughs> Geek Foo Action Grip. Beachcast. Comic Geek Speak. Speechless. Mad King. This Week in Tech. Warrentown Talk. NASCAR Zone. Shelly the Republican. A Voice from Eden. Jimmy McBean. Five Minutes with Wichita. Cinema Playground. Offbeat. The Logo Factory. The Exit 50. This and That with Jeff and Pat. Thoughts on Psychiatry. Web Hosting Show. Merlin from Berlin. Random Cast. Jazz with Tiger. American Road Trip Show. The Drew M Podcast. The Slam Idol Podcast. Forgotten Tales. The Zencast. XboxStation.net. How to Do Stuff. <laughs> Now, Pickle has a whole new meaning. PodcastPickle.com, the world's best podcast directory. Eerie Radio, opening the door to the unknown. Listener feedback. Really looking forward to the new episodes, so keep up with your work, guys. Thanks. Interviews. There's so many movies, so many documentaries, even books that come out that have factual information in it that maybe, you know, this is a gradual way of kind of educating the public to as to what's going on. Visit Erie Radio at www.erieradio.com. So we're talking today to Mitch Horowitz, who's recently released a book called Occult America, which is a, a really, really good kind of uh, objective look at the history of the occult in America. And uh, how did you... Uh, how did you enjoy the interview today, Raymond? Did you, Rob? Uh, did you enjoy the interview? I should say. <laughs> well, I enjoyed it very well, although I was, like I said earlier, kind of quiet. But uh, yeah, it's really cool. And not only is is Mitch an interesting guest, but he's a publisher. You know, sort of on top of that, mm. so he sort of has this sort of like Boris Balkan kind of character going on. It's really cool. Yeah, so if you're here with the Ninth Gate. Uh, Oh yeah, <laughs> I certainly, I certainly am. I hope the listeners are. That's a fantastic. Yeah, Frank Langella's occult publisher, uh, expert character sort of came to mind. I don't, I don't think Mitch Horowitz is going off and like trying to open up the ninth gate of hell. No. Like <laughs> but uh, really informative, especially about 
you know the occult as it relates to the united states mm. so. which is a uh, something actually close to your part i suppose in some ways because of the uh, recent tour you did over here i, I was i was thinking it was, it was quite stooges of the occult-esque in, in, in parts sure well i mean that's that's the thing is like i'll leave it to us americans to make stuff really silly so. <laughs> anyway but we'll roll to that interview now and we'll talk to you after Horowitz, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, could you could you give us a brief biography of yourself, please? Sure. Uh, I was born in the great borough of Queens, New York, which is uh, uh, the furthest uh, reaches of New York City. Uh, it's a suburb of Manhattan. We would refer to Manhattan as the city. We didn't see ourselves as being part of that world. And I grew up in the 1970s. Uh, it was a time here in the States when the supernatural was just everywhere in the air. Uh, it was probably similar in Britain. Uh, you know, we were bringing home books from our public library on ESP and Bigfoot and flying saucers, playing with Ouija boards, not being allowed by our parents to go see the movie The Exorcist and things like that. And I really grew up in this atmosphere where there was a whole kind of occult revival sweeping through America's popular culture. And uh, I always ask myself where all this material came from. Uh, for me, it wasn't enough just to read a newspaper horoscope for fun, but I knew that newspaper horoscopes, however much they were just an object of entertainment, were part of a thought system that had ancient roots. And I wanted to know about that. Even as a kid, I always wanted to know where folklore came from. And I really kind of held that with me like a a lit candle of interest as I grew into adulthood. And perhaps not surprisingly, I, I grew up... Uh, to become a publisher of New Age and occult books, and, and that great curiosity just built and built. And um, uh, today I'm the editor-in-chief of a company called Tarcher Penguin, which is one of the premier publishers of New Age and metaphysical books in America. And I just recently published my own book, Occult America, about uh, the history of occult and supernatural religious movements in the United States. Uh, I felt there was a, a great need for those movements to be written about with with seriousness and humor. Um, but 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 the, the 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 presence of a supernatural tradition goes back to the American colonies. It extends up through today's New Age spirituality and in many other places besides. And uh, I felt it was high time that there was a a properly rendered. Uh, religious history of occultism in America. So this book really started, uh, at least in terms of its um, uh, early kindling, when I was a child, and 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 culminated for me today as an adult. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, you guys did uh, the um, Charles Fort collection, didn't you? The uh, collection. Oh yes, that's one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah. we we. We entitled it The Book of the Damned after Fort's first book, and we did a, a, a wonderful, thick Charles Fort omnibus. It's uh, it's actually one of my favorite recent books here. Yeah, yeah, I got some. We, we reviewed it on the site. It's fantastic. It's really I'm big. Oh, big, great. Big great. fan of Charles Fort and the 14 Times. So. <laughs> excellent. Oh, good, good. Excellent. So um, what, what would you say are the earliest occult um, influences that we know about in the United States? I mean, uh, if we were to trace 
right back to the uh, the very beginnings, as it were. What are the uh, real kind of you know foundations, as it were, of uh, occultism in in America? Well, in the 1600s, you had various mysterious individuals and ideas floating around the American colonies, the way you did, you know, the way such things existed anywhere else in the Western world. But the first really intentional mystical community or movement appeared in America in the year 1694. At that time, there was a a German mystic and philosopher named Johann Kelpius, who led a group of about 40 pilgrims out of the Rhine Valley region of Central Europe. It was a region that uh, had just been decimated uh, during the Thirty Years' War. And even though that war ostensibly ended in 1648, uh, for generations afterward, uh, Central Europe uh, could seem at times uh, like a, something of a wasteland. Uh, people suffered famine, villagers had, villages had been decimated and destroyed, and it had been an area of religious liberalism, relatively speaking, uh, during the Renaissance, but it became an area of religious oppression in the shadow of the Thirty Years' War. So you had figures like Johann Kelpius spread throughout the region who were interested in Kabbalah, number symbolism, uh, alchemy, various forms of Christian mysticism. These were really the inheritors of the Renaissance occult tradition. And suddenly this area that had at one time um, been, been liberal was now racked with poverty and oppression. Kelpius managed to find his way to London and from London uh, travel across the Atlantic um, to the New World. And uh, he led his 40 pilgrims eventually uh, to the city of Philadelphia, which was a city that had been founded by an Englishman, William Penn, in 1682. And Penn uh, really envisioned Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, as a place where people of different religions could live together successfully. And very early on, Philadelphia was, even though it was a very small place, it was a religiously diverse place. You had Quakers and Mennonites, radical offshoots of the Lutheran Church. Eventually, um, Amish, Catholics, Jews settled there. It was a pretty remarkable place for such a small town. The Kelpius community, this little group of mystics from Central Europe, more or less found safe harbor there. They settled uh, on, uh, uh, on the banks of a creek, outside of town. And they were able to assemble a reasonably successful community that survived for a few years. They built um, a 40-foot square log cabin tabernacle, and they placed a telescope on top, which they had brought with them from Central Europe, and they used it to make astrological surveys and calculations of the heavens. And word trickled back across the Atlantic, and and other people from that region heard about Kelpius. His legend grew. Um, He uh, attracted followers and people who wanted to walk in his footsteps. And when some of these folks reached um, the New World in the early 1700s, they discovered to their disappointment that Kelpius had died. He died of tuberculosis a few years after establishing his colony. But one particularly dynamic follower of his, Johann Conrad Beisel, established another mystical commune in the Pennsylvania countryside in an area called Ephrata. And the pattern was really set after that. You know, people living in the colonies were aware through letters and newspapers that these little mystical colonies were were sprouting up in Pennsylvania, in the New England area, in the New York area, and people would visit them and write about them. And and it set a pattern where you you began to experience a steady trickle of people um, 
uh, in search of, of, of safe harbor, we'll say, for their religious views, especially views of a radical or supernatural bent um, uh, trickling across the Atlantic to the Americas. So it was really in the 1690s that, that the colonies began to develop this reputation as um, uh, a place that, were, that, was, that, 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 that was reasonably friendly to religious experiment. Would you say one of the earliest groups that formed in the States were the Freemasons? And uh, could you talk a little bit about their kind of occult connection? Yes. You know, the Freemasons um, at their founding uh, were were an occult group and could be justly described that way. I think they were probably, uh, again, they were sort of an echo of some of the Renaissance occult traditions. You know, when we find the first above-ground references to Masonry, in England and, and Scotland in the mid-1600s, and, 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 and this depends upon going into people's diaries and such, where they're making their first uh, clear references to being inducted into Freemasonic lodges. You can, you can see in the language and in the conversations that were taking place an influence from uh, uh, the Rosicrucian movement. Uh, the Rosicrucian movement was kind of, was thought to be, was rumored to be a, a hidden brotherhood in Europe in the early 1600s that had mystical and occult principles. Whether this brotherhood existed, there were Rosicrucian writings, and these things were clearly a ripple coming out of the uh, occult movements of the Renaissance. Um, they were espousing things that were really radical at the time, religious liberty, religious toleration, ecumenism, um, and all kinds of mystical concepts and principles. Um, and, and, and you found some of this language, you, you can trace a line of, um, a bloodline from Rosicrucianism, at least as a thought movement, to Freemasonry as an actual fraternity. And so, um, British garrisons and troops brought masonry to the American colonies uh, in the 1600s, 1700s, and it became the movement became very popular here. People were very turned on. Uh, people, people at least who were um, uh, educated, who were considered movers and shakers in colonial society, were very turned on by masonry because the the principles um, fit very neatly with um, how people in the colonies saw themselves. They saw themselves among other ways, as breaking with the sectarianism of the old world. Um, they, they had a kind of don't-tread-on-me attitude, and the religious liberty that found expression in masonry was in harmony with that. So very quickly, you find influential people in early American society joining Freemasonry. George Washington, Paul Revere, John Hancock, Benjamin Franklin. But just as interestingly, you also find people from more modest rungs of society becoming involved in Masonry. Um, There was a British garrison outside of the city of Boston in 1775 that gave a Freemasonic charter to a group of freed black men. And they formed themselves into uh, a Freemasonic lodge that was known as African Lodge Number 1. Today it's called Prince Hall Masonry. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's a traditionally black-led uh, Masonic Lodge that, that stands somewhat outside of the mainstream Masonic fold. But African Lodge Number 1, which was chartered in 1775, was really the first black-led abolitionist movement or anti-slavery movement in the American colonies. So, you know, you find Masonry's influence not only among the... Um, expected places among landowners, among the powerful, but you find it in different walks of life. It interjected a lot of liberal ideas into the American colonies. And and then, of course, you have this side of masonry that is secretive, that makes use of symbols that seem to us to be very occult, that go back to um, Egyptian and, and Greek antiquity, 
they used these symbols of all-seeing eyes, pyramids, obelisks, skulls, things like that, as codes for personal development, as initiatory codes. And, you know, as a movement that's kind of roaring out of the Reformation and out of the occult Renaissance, making use of, of some of these ancient symbols and standing outside of mainstream church structures, Masonry was a really radical group. You know, it's, it's, mm. it's, it's, its presence in America today is, is fairly mild. It's primarily a, a charitable organization, a fraternal organization. They do good things, but there are no grand religious and political projects necessarily coming out of Masonry in America today in the 21st century. But at the nation's founding, um, its fingerprints, I think, can just be found everywhere. And uh, it's funny because Americans... Many Americans harbor the suspicion of Masonry today because of its secrecy, and I think we need to take a whole new sounding of that in our society. I think Masonry was, was a really uh, positive influence in this country for religious liberty, religious toleration, and uh, shaped some of our founding documents in, in those directions. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's, um, often you hear Masons referred to negatively, especially by... Uh, alleged kind of scholars i suppose into into conspiracy theories etc yeah why is it do you think that um the masons get such a kind of a bad rap as it were <laughs> um or bad well rap? you know at, at the moment you know right now america is just creaking under the weight of these conspiracy theories and paranoia there's so much of it in the air there's so much of it online um i think it has something to do with the organization's secrecy which which may have been very practical and very necessary um, uh, at its at its founding in the 1600s. Obviously, there were there were people who were seeking to avoid controversy or religious persecution, and there were good reasons maybe to keep your membership secret in that kind of an organization. I think probably today that secrecy is outdated. In, in America, um, there was a scandal, a Masonic scandal in the 1820s where in upstate New York there was a, a disgruntled Freemason named William Morgan who was apparently preparing uh, a manuscript for publication that was supposedly going to reveal some of Masonry's secrets. Morgan uh, uh, went, suffered a variety of persecutions. He was arrested on phony charges, and the print shop that held his manuscript was burned down, and he eventually disappeared, and he was believed kidnapped and, and murdered at the hands of Masonic zealots. That's what m much of the public believed, and, and it instigated this wave of anti-Freemasonry in America beginning in the late 1820s, and it, it lasted probably for less than a generation. It, it, it died out, but Masonry never um, enjoyed the same level of prestige in American life again. There was always a feeling in the air after that that, you know, maybe these guys are kind of sneaky and manipulative and they have too much influence on the legal system, on the financial system. I mean, constantly I have people, you know, saying to me, sometimes jokingly, you know, come on, fess up. Doesn't, doesn't masonry really run the world? And I laugh and I say to them, you know, I wish, because I think that masonry's founding values are very good. Um, and today, you know, I, I have family members who are masons and, and they do anything but run the world, you know. <laughs> masonry today spends much of its time in charitable pursuits. They raise money for children's hospitals and so forth. And, um, their fraternal group, and 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 yet, people, I don't know what it is. You know, I, I don't know if it's like this presently in Europe, but in America, people are really distracted at present 
um, with paranoid theories and conspiracies. And when they look toward masonry, they're, they're just looking in the wrong place. Yeah, it definitely seems to be back on the rise again, um, at least in Europe. Uh, we've actually got a couple of questions regarding this uh, from our listeners. Uh, the first question I've got is, could, it, could uh, Mitch talk about Henry A. Wallace? In the- oh, yes. <laughs> one of my heroes, one of my favorite uh, um, figures in, in, in this book. Um, Wallace was a really unusual figure in, in American life. He was uh, the vice president to Franklin Roosevelt uh, during what we call the New Deal era. Um, Wallace uh, was also an explorer into occult religions and ideas, and he was very honest and he was very sincere and open with people about having a serious interest in the occult. And it's his name has been almost completely forgotten today. And uh, again, people have all these funny conspiracy theories about occultism, secret societies, secret alliances being involved in American politics, and they're so quick to overlook the places, the, the, the instances where such things were not secretive at all, but where people were very forthright and open about having interests in occult and esoteric movements and ideas. And Henry Wallace was probably the, 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 the finest and, and perhaps the last such example in American life. He, he grew up a farmer, and, uh, um, and, and, and in, in Franklin Roosevelt's first administration, he named Henry Wallace his Secretary of Agriculture. Wallace was a brilliant scientific agriculturalist, and his policies probably saved thousands of family farms in America during the Great Depression. Wallace was also interested very forthrightly in astrology, in various forms of mysticism, in Tibetan Buddhism, in Native American shamanism. Uh, He was a member of the Theosophical Society, the occult group that was founded in New York in 1875 and later spread across the world. Um, He was uh, a very active seeker in all these areas, and he was very forthright and upfront about it. He also was, for a period of time, uh, the student to a Russian mystic and theosophist named Nicholas Rorick. And Nicholas Rorick was a, a brilliant artist, brilliant intellect, an occultist, a mysterious man, and he cultivated kind of an air of drama and mystery about him. And Wallace uh, perhaps had a weakness for that kind of thing, and he very quickly fell into this world of drama and intrigue that Nicholas Rorick liked to create. Rorick gave Wallace an initiate name of Galahad, and Wallace wrote a number of letters to him that began, Dear Guru, and you know, used all kinds of arcane and strange imagery. Um, these letters eventually fell into the hands of a right-wing newspaper columnist in America who used them to absolutely bury Wallace. In, in the 1940s, when these letters came to light, they spelled the end of Wallace's political career. And uh, he, um, he was eventually pushed out of the... Um, he was he was he was pushed out of the vice presidency at an earlier point, but he was he was still a high-ranking cabinet official in the administration of Harry Truman. Uh, but eventually, he lost that job too. He was kind of on the outs politically. He was considered uh, too liberal for for his times in a certain sense, and he tried to mount a third party, what we call a third party challenge to Harry Truman. He tried to form a third progressive left-wing political party in America, and he was considered a very um, uh, powerful and, and, and promising figure in that regard. But when these letters came to light and when they were written about in the newspapers, um, Wallace really went down in disgrace. 
but he was such a unique man because it's so rare to find somebody in a position of political power who is so forthright about having avant-garde religious beliefs. And um, uh, if he was guilty of anything, he was probably guilty of um, uh, naively thinking that other people would respect the seriousness of his spiritual search. But um, unfortunately, that, that respect was, was not forthcoming. Yeah, we've got another quick question, which I think ties in. I mean, one of the groups I wanted to um, talk with you about was the Mormons and uh, Joseph Smith. And there's a connection, isn't there, between Joseph Smith and the Masons again? Um, yes. Yeah, and I was wondering if you could talk about that. Sure. You know, J- Joseph Smith, um, the founder of the Mormon faith, he grew up in an area of upstate New York that I write about extensively in the book in the early 1800s. This area was called the Burned Over District. It was a, uh, a strip of land in central New York State that was considered burned over by the fires of religious passion. It was a, it was a place where all these new religions and occult and esoteric ideas just seemed to spring up. And he and his family, um, Smith's family, were very uh, involved and interested in all kinds of folklore, astrology, um, uh, Joseph Smith in, in the local area was sometimes considered... Um, uh, a psychic or a seer, you know, his, 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 his family had a reputation for being wrapped up in, in all kinds of occult and esoteric practices. And there was big folklore in the area, too, that, that held that the Native Americans were uh, descendants from a lost tribe of Israel that had found its way. Every nation on earth thinks it's been visited by a lost tribe of Israel, um, and America is no exception. And the people of upstate New York believed that the Native Americans had descended from a lost tribe. And a lot of these different ideas eventually found their way in, in, in subtle forms into Joseph Smith's uh, Book of Mormon. Um, I don't mean to suggest that he necessarily derived it from the local folklore, but you know whether one views it as a as a as a derivation of of local folklore or as derivative from local folklore or confirming it the same ideas that existed in the burned over district exist in the book of mormon um uh with obvious differences um and and smith as he got older developed a a very keen interest in freemasonry and weirdly enough and this is just one of the oddest wrinkles of religious history in modern life the man i mentioned earlier william morgan the disgruntled Freemason who was yeah. apparently uh, murdered at the hands of Freemasons, he left behind a widow named Lucinda. Lucinda became, later became a wife to Joseph Smith. They hadn't known one another at all in upstate New York, but when Smith moved his, 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 his church out west, Lucinda followed, and she became one of the so-called spiritual wives to Smith. So not only did he marry this widowed woman, um, uh, uh, whose husband was, was supposedly murdered by Freemasonic zealots, but Smith got very interested in Freemasonry himself, and according to diaries and letters that exist from the period, um, he incorporated a certain Masonic rites and symbols and rituals and passion plays um, from Freemasonry into the Mormon Church. And if you look at, at, at Mormon Church structures today, um, you'll see Masonic symbols, like the beehive is, is one good example. The rising sun is another example. Um, his temple, um, a, a temple that he had founded in Illinois, uh, actually featured the image of the square and compass. Smith believed that the um, rituals of Freemasonry were a degraded version of the rituals of the Hebrew priests from the ancient tabernacle, and he believed he could take these rituals, um, revive them, uh, incorporate them into masonry and reestablish a connection with the Hebrew tabernacle. So, you know, thus you have all these 
um, rites and, 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 and practices and symbols from the occult move, movement of masonry that, that found their way uh, into the religion of Mormonism, which is today one of the fastest-growing uh, religions in the Western world. Yeah. Um, the book covers a lot of great kind of uh, interesting areas, and I'd like to go over a few of those now with you, if that's okay. Um, uh, the first one I think we should probably look at is uh, spiritualism. I mean, this was a huge yeah. thing in America. where I mean, You cover it quite heavily in the book. Um, could you give us a, a bit of a kind of history of spiritualism in America? Yeah. The, the, you know, spiritualism, simply put, it, it is the practice of uh, seances, talking to the dead, spirit raps, contacting the afterworld. And it existed in, in a variety of forms in America. There was a group that came from Manchester, England, called the Shaking Quakers, which, which later became known as the Shakers. And when they re- relocated to America around 1775, um, they were engaged in some of these, these things that we would later call uh, trans-channeling, seances, um, uh, mediumship. But, but, but the name spiritualism didn't emerge as a popular term until the year 1848. Uh, in that year, Again, going back to the same area that Joseph Smith lived in, this burned-over district of upstate New York, there were a couple of teenage girls living in this small log cabin outside of the city of Rochester in upstate New York. And uh, uh, there were these raps and bangs and noises heard throughout their little cabin. And the girls, these two young teenagers, told their proper Methodist parents that these noises were noises from the spirit world, and that they were a way to communicate uh, with spirits from the afterlife. And people just immediately began descending on this household, and um, they examined the girls, they checked them out, they tested their claims, and all kinds of influential people, from clergymen to uh, Supreme Court justices to the newspaper editor Horace Greeley said, by God, these young girls are telling the truth. They actually seem able to contact beings from the afterlife. And Americans wanted to believe this. They hungered to believe this, partly because there was such um, a presence of infant and childhood mortality in the nation at the time. Uh, People were constantly lost to childhood diseases, um, and there was no outlet for dealing with this grief in society. Calvinist Protestantism made uh, 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 offered people no possibilities of uh, pastoral counseling. You know, there was no such thing as therapy. You know, I mean, the idea of grief counseling was as foreign as life on another planet. People had nowhere to go with their grief. The seance table suddenly gave them a place to go, and whatever it was that was going on at the seance table, you find in letters and diaries of a very educated mainstream people these stories where they talk about having just some of the most moving episodes of their lives at the seance table. People experienced a kind of catharsis. They felt a sense of hope. And, um, and Americans also, they had this, this passion for believing that in this new society, in this fresh new world, it was possible to establish some kind of a new covenant or a new contact with the divine. And you know, that's what helped feed the popularity of a movement like Mormonism, and, that, and, a, and a similar impulse fed spiritualism. So you have this movement sweeping the country, and within it you can actually start to see the first vestiges of, of a kind of self-help 
or therapeutic spirituality yeah. in America because people are going to the seance table not just because they're wonder seekers, although certainly many people were wonder seekers, but they're going because they're seeking a religious answer to their grief, and they're, they're seeking it uh, uh, not through some intermediary, but right in the privacy of their homes. The idea of sitting around a seance table, or sitting around a Ouija board for that matter, you know, gave people a sense that the ineffable wasn't so far away. It seems sometimes foolish to us today, but, but when you look at what they were going through in terms of their grief and how little was available to them to cope with it, you know, it becomes possible to understand how that movement uh, spread so rapidly. Yes, and I also, I mean, I assume it spread fairly rapidly because it had quite a famous um, uh, fan, I suppose you could say, which in uh, Mary Todd Lincoln. Mary Todd Lincoln, yeah. yeah. Probably the most famous spiritualist in America. You know, she, um, after, after the Lincolns moved into the White House, they suffered the death of their favorite son, an 11-year-old boy named Willie, and he was really the family favorite, and he was lost probably to um, uh, tuberculosis or, or typhus fever, and those were the diseases that just continually took children, and there wasn't an American family who wasn't touched by it. Probably the same was true in Europe. And Mary Todd Lincoln very quickly took to spiritualism. She um, uh, uh, was an avid spiritualist. It wasn't just a passing interest. It was a it was a commitment, and this was sometimes a source of embarrassment to her after her husband was assassinated because she was found out visiting trance mediums, and it was written about in places like the New York Times and the Boston Gazette. In fact, one of the young teenage girls from upstate New York who started the whole spiritualist sensation, Margaret Fox, later became a trance medium, and and Mrs. Lincoln visited her in Boston after her husband's death. Um, now, it's, 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 it's likely, and I write it as, as I write in the book, that there were seances held in the Lincoln White House. Um, the records about this stuff are tricky. You know, there's always a challenge over which sources to trust. Um, but the newspaper, the Boston Gazette, did run a long report describing a seance in the Lincoln White House um, during the Civil War in the, in the mid uh, 1860s, and um, and I think the account probably holds up. Some of it, I think, it, it is certainly invented, um, but I, I um, it spread throughout many different newspapers, and there's no record of the White House ever having challenged it or contested it. And um, uh, one of Lincoln's um, most famous biographers, um, Carl Sandburg, he wondered why would the president have permitted a reporter uh, to be in the room during a seance. It just seems like something totally embarrassing and compromising. But I think for Lincoln, having a seance in the White House actually served a shrewd political end. Um, these seances were not always matters of grave seriousness. For some people, they were just like novelties or a kind of a parlor game. And I think Lincoln wanted to present himself as relaxed, not over-encumbered by wartime command and able to sit back at a seance table and enjoy uh, the same kind of novelty that lots of Americans were participating in. And, and sure enough, this, this report of the Lincoln seance not only appeared in newspapers um, in, in the North, but they appeared in the South um, among uh, Confederate or secessionist 
newspapers. And I think it was actually a propaganda coup for him. And I, I think it really did happen. Um, there was another account of a seance in the White House that was more grave and more seriousness, and the sources are a little shakier. But apparently uh, Lincoln's wife, Mary Todd, brought a teenage trance medium to see him, and she went into a trance state, and the spirits that she contacted, according to her account, advised Lincoln to sign the Emancipation Proclamation and formally free African-American slaves. Now, whether that really happened is more doubtful, but uh, the interesting thing is that there was a, a kind of the claims that, that were made by American spiritualists in the mid-1900s um, usually were in harmony with what were considered progressive social causes. There were lots of anti-slavery folk, women's rights folk, people with radical or progressive political opinions flocked into spiritualism. The two movements completely overlapped. So spiritualists at the time didn't want to be seen as claiming that they manipulated someone in power or that they were a hidden hand behind the throne. They wanted to be seen as agents of social progress. So it's kind of a funny and interesting spiritualist claim that, you know, that they weren't, they weren't um, manipulating the presidential family. They were encouraging the presidential family um, to commit itself to freeing the slaves. That was the social attitude of, uh, of spiritualism. And, and, you know, for probably a generation in the 19th century, you see this complete overlap and um, uh, cross-pollination uh, between uh, occult religious movements and, and radical political movements. They both drew on the same members. They, they grew up side by side. Yeah, that's interesting. You actually talk in the book about how spiritualism empowered females as well in America in terms of uh, their access to, I guess, preaching or... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's actually one of the most overlooked aspects of of American political history. People just 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 ignore it or 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 or, or misunderstand it altogether. They overlook it. Um, spiritualism actually created the first opening for women to be seen as religious leaders in society, at least of, of a certain sort, because all the trans mediums, by and large, were women. So people would go to a seance table, and there would be a woman serving as a medium, really presiding over the whole event. And women who wanted to have some kind of a public voice in religion or in, in, in social matters, in the mid-19th century, they flocked into spiritualism. Spiritualism uh, held itself up as a kind of liberal, um, progressive religion, a religion that it didn't see itself at odds with science or progress. Spiritualism claimed that these manifestations from the spirit world were kind of a marriage of science and religion. And, 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 and almost from the very start, you had a presence of female leadership. And you really could not find a voting rights activist in America in the mid-19th century who hadn't spent some time at the seance table. The two worlds just completely overlapped. And the same was true of other uh, esoteric or occult movements in America, like the mental healing movement. You know, you look at the leadership and you find many, many female names among the leadership. This represented an opening. This was a place where articulate, ambitious women could go and find their first taste of, um, of, of religious or, or civic leadership. And, and again, you know, there was probably... Uh, probably between the mid to late 19th century in America, just about every prominent uh, suffragette or voting rights activist had had one foot 
in the spiritualist movement. That they were both branch, branches uh, uh, growing from the same tree. That's interesting. Well, I mean, another movement from, I guess, not far off that particular period we were just talking about um, is mesmerism and positive thinking. And uh, one of yes. our listeners wants to know if you could talk to us a bit about Phineas Quimby. Yes, Phineas Quimby uh, was a clockmaker uh, who who um, lived in the state of Maine, and uh, he made an interesting personal discovery in the 1830s, which was that when he went for these rejuvenating uh, carriage rides in the New England countryside, he felt his tuberculosis lifting. He felt physically better, and uh, he began to ask himself, uh, what is the relationship between my moods and my physical well-being. And, and like many people in New England, uh, Quimby um, in the early 1840s was getting his first taste of this philosophy called mesmerism, which started to get carried over to America by um, uh, certain teachers and instructors from France. Uh, the Marquis de Lafayette, who a, 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 was, a, was, a, was a French hero in the American War of Independence was interested in mesmerism. Lots of influential people uh, took an interest in mesmerism, which was a, 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 a controversial philosophy uh, that held that all of life was animated by this invisible uh, magnetic fluid, which, which uh, Franz Anton Mesmer, the founder, called animal magnetism. Mm. And he believed that you could put people into a trance state, manipulate this unseen life force, this animal magnetism, and heal them of ailments or even introduce suggestions into their mind where they could uh, speak in different languages. Uh, you know, if you could manipulate animal magnetism, you could manipulate the very um, essence of a person's life and heal them and or, 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 or do lots of other things. Um, so lecturers began to spread out around America talking about mesmerism, and Quimby got very turned on by all this, and he thought this confirmed his ideas, that, 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 that somehow uh, the mind was the gateway uh, to, to this, to this um, in, invisible life force that controlled our health, uh, and maybe controlled other outer events in our lives. And he began to work with these ideas, and he eventually um, uh, came around uh, to the um, conviction that um, uh, the seat of health and wellness is in the human mind. Disease follows an opinion, Quimby said. That was, that was his phrase, disease follows an opinion. And he believed, ultimately, that if you could change a person's thinking about his illness, you could cure him of his illness. And there were lots of people who were sympathetic to this idea because, I mean, there was, there, there, there was no system of medical licensing uh, in America at the time. And, you know, people had, had you know, there were, there were people using the title doctor um, who would often do more harm than good, would, would, would bleed people still or, or give them ingestions of, of mercury or narcotics. And, you know, there, there, there was no standard medical practice in America to address people's pain. And, you know, the idea that, that, that you could use the mind as an instrument of healing, uh, for many people at least represented a gentler alternative than what they felt they were sometimes subjected to by backcountry doctors. So Quimby's ideas t very quickly took influence, and he attracted a student named Mary Baker Eddy, who later went on to found um, one of the fastest-growing American religions of the 19th century, Christian science. And, and she took some of Quimby's ideas, but, but, but remade them dramatically and very quickly distanced herself from Quimby, uh, in some ways um, with a certain degree of um, vindictiveness. She almost seemed to want to 
uh, push Quimby out of the picture. And, 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 and after he died, she referred to him as if he was a, a little more than just a carnival performer, a carnival mesmerist or a carnival hypnotist. And she crafted this whole vast theology around the idea that that there was one great divine mind in the universe and that we had to overcome the lesser, lower human mind and let this divine mind, um, which was the source of all healing and peace and prosperity uh, and the one true reality, as she saw it, uh, permeate our lives, permeate our existence. And, you know, there were so many different offshoots of this idea that the mind was somehow the seat of creative power, divine power. Uh, you know, the, the, Mary Baker Eddy had her own version. There were lots of other people who had uh, different versions. And, and by the late 19th century, um, the, the, there really existed this movement in many different parts of America that went by many, many different names that essentially came down to the power of positive thinking, this belief that the mind is a creative, causative instrument. And, and really, you know, this idea was fairly fully formed by the late, 19th, early 20th century, and and today it, it probably has become uh, basically the the operating system for all of our self help programs uh, in America and in Europe. I mean, every self help program, whether it's considered uh, New Age or whether it's 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 associated with uh, more conservative forms of religion, has to do with this idea that attitude is everything. Hmm. That that your attitude is going to outpicture in your abilities and successes in outer life, whether it has to do with overcoming drinking or drugs or somehow attaining some kind of prosperity or happiness in your home, every self-help program to some greater or lesser degree draws upon this central idea that attitude is formative. And, you know, if you really follow the family tree backwards, you can see uh, that idea took shape um, in the experience of, of Phineas Quimby, this, this New England clockmaker, along with influences from mesmerism, from Emanuel Swedenborg, from American transcendentalism. There were a variety of different influences floating around, but he was the one that sort of grabbed this bundle of sticks and put it all together. And, uh, you know, great ideas start in very modest places, and, and, and his name has been completely forgotten. Uh, uh, I doubt, you know, you, you could find one out of a hundred people who have any idea who Phineas Quimby is. But his thought experiments... Uh, probably uh, more than those of any single individual, gave birth to the contemporary culture of self-help. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, would you say um, that, say, like uh, projects like The Secret now uh, have some kind of relation back to mesmerism and Quimby? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's funny, you know, the, the lineage of that movie goes straight back to the people that we were just talking about. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. it's interesting it's, how it sort of survived and uh, sort of mutated, and yet, like you say, there's no kind of real reference back to its origins, really. I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's funny. I mean, some of the people who are referenced in The Secret, uh, one of my favorites is a guy named Wallace Waddles. He was a social reform minister who was involved with these ideas in the early 1900s. And, um, you know, some of the people and the ideas that you'll see running throughout The Secret. Uh, were were people who were just 
mm, a couple of generations removed from Phineas Quimby. You know, it, 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 you know, those ideas developed very rapidly, and they didn't change very much. Mm. Uh, there were a lot of interesting people among the pioneers, among the founders, and they had different hopes that maybe these ideas could serve some progressive social purpose. I don't think those, those, those hopes were ever fulfilled. Um, but the basic idea uh, of, of, of the causative powers of the mind Gosh, it, it took shape in the late 1900s, early 20th century, and it really hasn't changed very much um, from what people saw in The Secret. Mm. Now, it's, um, obviously, there's uh, quite a few areas that we could go over on them, and we might have to have you back on to completely cover the book. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> um, one um, particular person I think that I think you, you cover quite a lot in the book, excuse me, <clears throat> is uh, Madame Blavatsky. Yeah. Um, and theosophy. I mean, this is a quite a uh, influential movement throughout various occult uh, strains. So, uh, yeah. could you talk yeah. a little bit about Blavatsky and the theosophy movement? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I, I a, a book never winds up um, um, in the same place uh, that, that that you envisioned it would. And when I first began writing this book in in the fall of two thousand five. I thought, well, Madame Blavatsky will certainly be a part of it, but I didn't see her as a primary character. And, um, you know, I probably at the time saw her as a mixture of, you know, uh, one part religious genius, one part charlatan. But the fact is, my, my, the depth of my respect uh, for Madame Blavatsky and my, my recognition of her accomplishments just grew and grew and grew over the course of researching this book. Mm. Uh, Blavatsky was a Russian noblewoman who had traveled, apparently, to many different parts of the world before she came to uh, visit America in the early 1870s. And she came to America, uh, she said, because she wanted to visit the birthplace of spiritualism. She felt that this was the place where one could explore occult and arcane ideas and, and not suffer harassment. And, and she had all kinds of ambitions that I suppose she felt could be fulfilled in America. And in the year 1875, um, she and a, and a retired Civil War colonel named Henry Steele Olcott, who was a remarkable, interesting person. He was one of the early investigators of the Lincoln assassination. He was a brilliant scientific agriculturalist. Um, Madame Blavatsky and Colonel Olcott together founded the Theosophical Society. And their idea, their aim, their outlook, um, was that there existed an occult philosophy an underground historical philosophy, an early primal religious philosophy that fed all of the historic faiths, but that had been forgotten to modern people, that was lost to modern religions. And they wanted to tear up the floorboards and, and get back to the source of this ancient occult or esoteric philosophy. And the interesting thing about Olcott and Blavatsky, they were engaged in all kinds of colorful activities and pursuits, and you know people questioned... Uh, sometimes their methods or their sincerity, whether they were making things up, inventing miracles to attract followers. But the fact is, they were living a fairly comfortable existence in New York City in 1875. I mean, it was a place where, you know, you could take a, a train anywhere. Uh, there was coal heat. There were there were there was the telegraph cable. Um, uh, there was gas lighting. It was a reasonably comfortable place. But they uprooted themselves and they left New York City in 1878, just a few years after founding their organization, and they moved to India, which at the time was considered a total backwater in the Western world. There was no romance about India. There was no sense 
in the American mind that India could be this this seat of ancient religious truths. Nobody knew what Hinduism was. Nobody could even spell it, you know, by and large. Mm. But Blavatsky and Olcott uh, came to a conviction that the Eastern faiths, specifically Hinduism and Buddhism, uh, needed to be defended uh, from being chipped away by colonial activity, by missionary activity, and they decided that, that they could mount a defense of these faiths most effectively from uh, the soil where they sprang. So they made this extremely courageous decision to leave New York City, uproot themselves in middle age, not in the best of health, and move to India, this society where they couldn't speak the language, where there was really no guarantee of uh, physical comfort or physical safety for that matter. Mm. And they became a tremendous influence over the early Indian independence movement. Um, uh, one of their followers became uh, really the chief founder of the Indian uh, National Congress, the policy-making board of the independence movement. And, and they became venerated um, within uh, political circles in India uh, to the point where um, Madame Blavatsky had moved uh, from uh, India to, uh, to London in, in the final years of her life. And in the late 1880s, um, a young law student named Mohandas Gandhi was studying in London, and he went to meet Madame Blavatsky. And in, 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 in his own letters and diaries, he described himself as being overwhelmed by the experience. And, and for the first time, he became convinced that maybe there was wisdom in the religion of his childhood, Hinduism, the religion that he thought just belonged to his parents' world, and that he, as an ambitious young law student, wanted to get away from. And so as he describes it, theosophy and his meeting with Blavatsky ignited in him the desire to return to um, uh, the holy works of Hinduism, specifically uh, the Bhagavad Gita, which became his daily guide to life. Those were his words. And um, Gandhi identified theosophy as uh, sort of the starting point in his young life for uh, uh, developing a political and, and social philosophy of universal brotherhood, for coming around to the idea that he so brilliantly articulated later in his life um, that all nationalities, all religions, all social castes were essentially equal. This was an idea that was coming out of theosophy uh, at that time. It was at least an ideal that theosophy promulgated. I can't say that every individual, neither Madame Blavatsky nor Henry Olcott, uh, exemplified those ideals every day of their lives, but they, they were a, 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 a philosophy that, that, that the group was espousing. It touched Gandhi so deeply that it, it set him on his course as a political activist. It was not a course that he had... Um, uh, come to London seeking or planning for himself. And this has been almost completely written out of uh, modern history. You know, Gandhi took a dramatic and, and profound influence from theosophy. He also later broke with theosophy. In the 1920s, he publicly distanced himself from the organization because he didn't like its secrecy. And he felt that uh, secrecy was never in the service of, of true democracy. But the fact is, he never qualified or backed off from uh, the great influence that he took from theosophy when he was a young man. And Gandhi, in turn, became a tremendous source of influence in the 1950s uh, to a, a Harvard Divinity School student in America named Martin Luther King, who had a picture, a photograph of Gandhi hanging in his 
in his dining room, mm. who, who, who took some of his central ideas from Gandhi's philosophy of, of universal brotherhood. So this family tree has gotten buried. It's gotten obscured. Uh, there's a, a, a recent uh, major biography of Gandhi that was, that was published two years ago that um, makes barely a mention of theosophy. So this is one of the ways that occultism and occult movements um, have, ha, you know, ha, have just gotten overlooked, ignored, or even written out of our history. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, people, mainstream historians and journalists, um, they're, they're too uh, quick to latch on to the secondhand wisdom that Madame Blavatsky was just a charlatan. She may have had such instances in her life, but there was so much more there. There was so much more there. And it's difficult for us to marry these two things. You know, how can someone be a religious genius and also have these episodes of claiming to conjure up spirits and stuff? We can't believe any of that stuff. Uh, you know, so be it. But, but, but we do a disservice to history not to look at um, uh, the full picture. So that's what I try to do in the book. You know, I also don't want to turn away from the fact that Gandhi broke with theosophy. I mean, you know, there's no purpose served in idealizing any of this stuff. Um, but 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 we ought not run away from it either. Yeah. I mean, there's one point um, earlier in the book where you're quite dismissive of um, uh, orders like the Golden Dawn, for example. Um, is there? Uh, do you do you feel that these orders hold any particular weight, or do you think that? Um, I mean, this is something we've covered a few times on the show. Or do you think they're? I don't. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, <laughs> that's a. It's a tough question for me. It's something I wrestle with. I mean, there's no. There's no doubt in my mind that um, there were so many brilliant intellects uh, that streamed in and out of the Golden Dawn. Um, McGregor Mathers, uh, you know, Yates, e- even Aleister Crowley. You know, these were all such different kinds of people. Um, but they were people with tremendously formidable minds, and I, I think that the Golden Dawn was sincerely involved in trying to revive some kind of esoteric doctrine. Um, I found myself uh, not always liking the exclusivity of the organization, um, the rigor of its initiatory rights. Um, I think that um, there was such a zeal to want to revive ancient doctrine, that sometimes the organization rushed into rituals and uh, costumes and rites that, that, that were hastily uh, prepared. Um, you know, and, and, and I suppose uh, there, there was a degree of secrecy, uh, a love of, of forming some kind of an inner lodge mm. that didn't really resonate with me. I mean, I'm much more aroused by how theosophy's ideas sort of imperfectly or not spread throughout different parts of the world, whereas the the Golden Dawn seemed to me a place, a gathering place for people of of brilliance and and people of of formidable intellect. But I wasn't, I'm I'm not entirely convinced that its legacy um, has been a lasting one uh, in substance, Uh, certainly in style it has. Certainly people who practice ceremonial magic take cues and ideas from out of the Golden Dawn, and there were many brilliant ideas there. I don't mean to suggest that there, that there weren't. It's just that I think sometimes it, it could cling to drama and secrecy almost as an end to itself. Mm. Well, we've uh, just had a good question, um, and I think this uh, segues nicely, actually. We've, we've spoken a lot about the kind of uh, positive side of the influence of the occult, especially in America, but there's uh, the good example I've just been given in chat is... Uh, the uh, William Dudley Pelly, 
um, yeah, uh, being a more kind of, uh, I guess, a darker uh, product of the occult. <laughs> yes, yes. Pelly um, was the, the, the founder of America's first neo-Nazi order in the early 1930s. He had been a Hollywood screenwriter and a short story writer. And in fact, he introduced many Americans to the idea of the near-death experience. Pelly wrote a very popular article in the late 1920s called Seven Minutes in Eternity. Mm. And he talked about how he died and traveled in this astral body to the afterlife, where he was counseled by these spiritual mentors or higher mentors. And people were just very aroused by this story, and, and just thousands of people wrote letters into him telling him they had had similar experiences, and it, it really uh, struck a nerve with people. Several years later, whatever it was that went on in the mind of William Dudley Pelly, he began to say that the higher mentors, the spiritual mentors, were counseling him that Hitler was some kind of a, a psychically led being, some kind of a man of destiny. Hmm. And, um, and the day that, that Hitler uh, became uh, German chancellor in 1933, as Pelly wrote, something clicked in my brain. Those were his words. Hmm. And he... he, he he came to feel that his, his, the spiritual guidance that he was receiving from some higher dimension of reality uh, was telling him to not only follow Hitler, uh, but to mimic Hitler here in America. And Pelly founded an organization here in the States called the Legion of the Silver Shirts. They were a fascist order. They were a paramilitary fascist order, the first of its kind, uh, specifically echoing and, and mimicking uh, the Nazi movement. Hmm. And Pelly, um, uh, he was an extremely effective writer. He was an effective propagandist. His writings uh, took on a certain vogue, a certain popularity. They fell into the hands of the modernist poet Ezra Pound. And uh, Pound himself has written that some of Pelly's writings um, began uh, bending and shaping some of Pound's own thoughts in the direction of fascism and anti-Semitism. And Pelly had a strange and broad influence for a period of time. Uh, he, he was eventually uh, convicted on, on various charges of mail fraud and securities fraud. Uh, at, uh, at the dawn of the Second World War, uh, the U.S. government became very concerned about various right-wing cults that existed in America. They feared that these cults, particularly in California, uh, could become some kind of a fifth column for the Axis powers if Japan, for example, ever invaded the west coast of the country. Um, so Pelly uh, was very quickly swept up in kind of this, this, this federal mop-up of various right-wing groups in America. And he served in prison. He served about seven years in prison. And he got out in the 1950s, and uh, um, he began to get involved in a whole variety of channeled spiritual teachings and early UFO cults and that kind of thing. Um, but the, the dark legacy of William Dudley Pelly is that he absolutely set the style, the language, the aesthetic, the tone of the hate movement in America. There's no question about it. He is the, the founding father of uh, the neo-Nazi and hate movement in America. And um, there's no escaping that uh, he, um, uh, uh, he was, he was, he, he, he 
uh, availed himself of occult practices, agencies. I mean, he was a dyed-in-the-wool occultist uh, in, in, in terms of feeling that, that, that there was this uh, invisible intelligence that he was in contact with on a higher dimension of reality. He used his own brand of esoteric theology uh, to form uh, basically uh, a hate organization. And so um, as, as much as I believe it's important to think clearly and look carefully at these things and not to overly generalize, it is a fact uh, that the neo-Nazi and hate movement in this country uh, does have uh, occult roots in the form of William Dudley Pelly. Yeah, and do you think this is uh, this and maybe perhaps like instance like the William Morgan incident, this could be uh, shape why there's a kind of distrust of the occult in modern times. I mean, there certainly seems to be a kind of uh, a negative uh, stigma attached to it at least. Yeah, I think probably the distrust and the negativity has very very deep roots. You know, to some extent in the West, it comes out of this reaction against the occult liberalism that grew up out of the Renaissance. Um, you know, the, 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 the church was always um, issuing encyclicals against Freemasonry. There was suspicion of, uh, uh, I mean, the, 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 the word occultism grew out of the Renaissance. It was more or less a benign word, and then it, 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 it had darker associations forced upon it, I think, in the 1600s. Um, I don't think there's any proclivity towards... Um, uh, fascism uh, or 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 power mongering in the occult any more than you would find within any other uh, uh, religious expression. You know there are higher and lower iterations of of every religion, and those that go toward exclusivism usually manifest in some kind of a brutal politics, uh, which is what you found in Pelly. But then you know you, you can find the reverse mirror image. You know you, you find Gandhi taking influences from an occult group, it leads him in the direction of universal brotherhood. It seems to me that this, this constant predicament that we have in our religions, um, you know, uh, you, you, you hand one man a Bible and, and, and he declares that he must love his neighbor, you hand another man a Bible or some kind of other religious scripture and he finds perfect cause to kill his neighbor. You know, it's, it's the great flaw in, in human nature. It manifests in our religious movements, whether esoteric or, 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 or historic, just over and over again. Um, you know, no sooner can you find a William Dudley Pelly than you could find his, his mirror opposite. It seems to me that, that, that religion if, if is, is, is the, 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 um, it's a mirror that, that holds up all our human contradictions. Um, so I don't think the occult has, has any predilections uh, toward the dark side more than any other uh, religious expression in that sense. It's just that um, we are, are such divided people, and there's such a peculiarity in human nature uh, that, 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 that drives us to take religious or ethical philosophies and, and use them uh, toward violent ends. Yeah. Well, before we let you go, I just wanted to ask you a couple of more kind of amusing questions, actually, really. Um, Please. <laughs> um, the... Obviously, in the last few months, there seems to have been a kind of influx of occult spottings, I call them, or occult sightings. And one of them seems to be uh, the occult in hip-hop. And I was wondering if you'd yeah. come across this <laughs> at all. Well, here in America, uh, the hip-hop uh, artist Jay-Z, he likes to use occult imagery. He uses Masonic imagery. He uses some of the expressions of Aleister Crowley. Mm. Uh, he likes to play around with the eye in the pyramid, the, the occult symbol that appears on the back of the U.S. dollar bill. I mean, you know, I think that, that, that he's a very, very um, aware and intelligent guy, and he likes to make use of uh, what I guess you could, could, could call um, uh, 
avant-garde symbols from all across the culture. You know, there there are certain um, symbols that uh, kind of push back against the mainstream, politically or religiously, in one way or another. Uh, uh, Jay-Z has a video out now for his new song, uh, Run This Town, and there's occult images in it, but as I pointed out to somebody recently on the radio, there's also somewhere in the video an image of, of Mao Zedong, and I don't think that... Um, <laughs> Uh, Jay Z is advocating agrarian socialism, you know, any more than he's advocating occultism. Uh, but there are these transgressive images, you know, whether it's Mao Zedong or Che Guevara or the image of a pentagram mm. that that seems to sort of push back at something in the mainstream. And I think that's why hip hop uh, falls in love from time to time with occult images. It's a bit like almost you often get Hell's Angels that will use SS imagery, you know, to be kind of rebellious. They use the kind of uh, shocking imagery occasionally. Do you think? Yeah, yeah. No, I would. I should also add. You know, I mean, here in the states, there are certain urban uh, uh, African American mystery religions. Jay Z grew up in New York City, and in Harlem, there is a a, a mystery religious group called the Five Percenters, and. Uh, they they have have all kinds of influences, um, uh, many of them occult and 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 some of them self created, uh, and and he uses some of their symbols too. They have been an influence on some of the New York hip hop scene. So I write about this in the book. You know that there there was this marriage in the early 20th century in America of black nationalism and esoteric or occult spirituality. Again, you know the religious avant garde and the political avant garde always were uh, intersecting at certain points in American history. And that's true of different liberatory or nationalist black movements in America. So to some extent, the influence is also coming out of that. Excellent. So uh, thanks a lot for coming on the show. If people want to uh, get you on the web, where can they, uh, where can they point their browsers? Oh, well, uh, they, can, they can go to my website, which is MitchHorowitz.com. They can visit me on Facebook and, and friend me there. And the book Occult America is available uh, just anywhere. You can buy it on Amazon.com, Amazon UK, and uh, anywhere you like. I'm very easy to find on the web. Just put my name into Google. You'll find your way to my website. Excellent. And I think we're definitely going to have to get, get you back on because we only really did cover a small amount <laughs> of uh, the stuff we should have done really as well. Uh, so, yeah, thanks a lot for coming on. And, uh, yeah, uh, uh, we'll see you soon, I hope. Thank you. I'd, I'd be happy to come back on. Welcome to MySpace Heroes. 
this week it's uh, Memories of Trees with Snakes and Headaches demo version, Diamond District with I Mean Business, and Vlooper with Mazungu. Turn a threat into a promise, I ain't scared Can't put the best away, my nigga say what well, I ain't with Street 
faces. Still watching like Jay-Z said. In case you're listening, puzzle like I ain't here. Hit me up and leave a message, but I ain't here. I'm thinking about that old 9BM you might see me in. So when I say I mean biz, I mean it. I see in the future a cell I could be in. Or with a chick with nice long legs in between them. Y'all know what my dream is. Try to come in between here. I'll define retaliation. Show you the meaning. I went from Lada to a lot of all because of Allah. Still remember what I was told by my mama. My mama. Stand up, back straight, check my shoulder. No, remember what I told you, I'm a soldier. Uh, kick them on the bound and they keep composing. You never see me sweat, but it's these might roll up. But when they roll up, I mean business. If I show up, I mean business. Wait a minute, hold up, I mean business. Come on, y'all, this my witness. I you mean, see, bitch. I gotta prepare myself just for this world outside. I get a really ball fire to do my exercise. Clear my mind, four sets of 25. The music loud, high rise. I'm on the balcony watching the sun climb to the top of the sky. That inspires me to try breathing hard and speak to God right. Today gonna be all right. Put on the right of pearls and I have a bowl to serve you. Say to my girl, or else they will try to curry you. I plan my day before stepping out there. Do this foolish eight hours just so I can count bread. And my daughter's mouth fed. That goes without Saying co-workers cracking jokes, but now nah, been out playing. I got a plan in my mind. Yeah, I'm handling mine. It is a habit to grind. So look me dead in my eyes. I put it all on the line. Then I record it through rhyme. Within a war against time, think large call for arms. For arms, for arms, for arms, Remember what I told you, I'm a soldier. Take the one down and the key composing. You never see me sweat, but the sleeves might roll up. But when they roll up, I mean big. If I show up, I mean big. Wait a minute, hold up, I mean big. Yeah, all this for witness, I mean big. We living in a system with no sex advances. So we talented, it right sex to balance it. Right sex to battle it. Time set to scale even. A tug of war for the right grip to handle it. So I got calluses, a rebel on my own people. The war going like push bombing for no reason. I push on with imagining that my manuscripts are pamphlets for propaganda to activists. Now let the dodge be the rocket high star for random faith. So I'm you mean business, grab a hospice. And their hearts is proud, and if they ever try to take it, they will take it alive. I'm a sinner with the same sensations, throwing rocks at a tank, ain't making a dent. But knowing that still throwing make the rock represent that I am strong. And you can peep the hook and see the speeds I am on. Stand up, back straight, check my shoulder. Remember what I told you, I'm a soldier. Kick the one down and the keep composing. You never see me sweat, but the speeds might roll up. But when they roll up, I mean big. If I show up, I mean big. Wait a minute, hold up, I mean big. Y'all, that's my witness, I mean big. Alors toi aussi, tu es un extraterrestre. Tu devrais pouvoir m'emmener voir mon papa et ma maman dans les étoiles. Quand tu seras grand. Alors je te promets de manger beaucoup de soupe. Promets-moi aussi de ne raconter à personne ce que tu as vu. Thank <laughs> you. 
That was easily one of my favorite interviews, actually, thinking about it. I really, really enjoyed that. I think we talk, we touched on some really uh, interesting, some stuff I wanted to touch on in earlier shows, but we never actually got around to, like the Freemasonry and Theosophy. I mean, I, I know you guys have uh, spoken about Blavatsky before. I mean, it, I think we need to get him back on. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right, Ken. I mean, there was obviously so much more that you, that you guys could have i'm not going to say we i'll say you guys could have talked about <laughs> during the interview uh and uh this guy's obviously willing to, to to talk about all these subjects and really well informed right mm. and um this was a great crash course on the 19th century and what spirituality was like mm. uh, in certain parts of the world in the 19th century so maybe we can get him on again and talk about you know more up-to-date more contemporary topics i think that could be really cool and also Ouija boards. I forgot to talk about Ouija boards. I love Ouija boards. <laughs> Just because I think they're, they're those kind of, uh, I don't know what you call them really, kind of uh, notorious items of the occult that kind of, oh, we should, we should have mentioned. Well, they're a nexus of both people's belief in spiritualism and, and sort of uh, conservative religious types fear of that because it's like something you could actually see you know you don't if you're like a baptist you're not gonna like suddenly walk in on some like giant ritual with like you know 20 black robed figures chanting in latin but you may find a ouija board in your neighbor's closet yeah. you know what i'm saying yeah yeah no it's uh, it's interesting i mean uh i've found some of the uh the connections between bavatsky really interesting as well i mean the, I've, i had no actual knowledge of her having any connection with Gandhi. <laughs> I don't know if you did, but... Uh... Uh, no, and I, I, got, I have to admit that I, in many ways, before this interview, fell into that category of people that really sort of looked down on Blavatsky as this sort of charlatan. Mm. But, but, you're, but you're right. If you think about, like, equaling out the sexes, you know, mm. uh, in, in a spiritual way, she had a big impact on that. Yeah, you know? definitely. Yeah, yeah and also, um, I found... That quite refreshing actually normally when especially on podcasts and uh you know kind of alternative media in, in parentheses there um freemasonry is often seen as uh by the people talking about it almost as a, it's just it's a given that freemasons it's a are boogeyman a, yeah exactly it's a given that they're this evil uh you know uh fraternity whereas uh, i found mitch actually spoke about them in a far more kind of uh non-biased and actually quite positive <laughs> view which is quite refreshing well, you know, that's what happens. Typically what happens in these situations is if you run into a very sort of anti-Masonic sort of rhetoric, it's because people had already made up their minds before they started studying the Masons about what they thought about. Them. So if you, come in, if you come at a situation or a topic that you want to study like Freemasonry and you say, okay, well, I know they're evil, I know they're part of the New World Order, then you're probably only going to take in sources that 
that t that tend to agree with you, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I think it shows that he went into it with an open mind. You know what I'm saying? Because you're right, the vast majority of the literature, you know, outside from your normal history books, really does paint them in a negative light, which I don't I don't agree with either. I think they're a very positive force. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting stuff. But anyway, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on and helping me out today, Raymond. What, what have you been up to in the uh, month since we last spoke? <laughs> well, I just received a message on my cell phone. I'm sure all of you guys heard that. Uh, I have been... Um, well, we've launched a new version of disinfo.com. I mean, that's the biggest piece of news that I got for you guys. If you if you thought that disinfo.com was a little 2003, 2004 for your liking, we have at least attempted to bring it up into a more current form. So go with it, go and check that out at disinfo.com. You can hear mine and Joe and Austin's podcasts there. Uh, if you click on the podcast link, uh, and also, you know, you'll, when we post news stories, you'll find that uh, on the news feed as well. Um, yeah, that's what's been going on. We've been doing the Disinfo podcast and Disinfo World News. Like you, like I said, you can check that out, disinfo.com slash podcast or on iTunes. And there's uh, one thing I just got sent by you guys was the New World Order DVD, which I'll stick a review of that up actually on the site this week. And uh, that was quite interesting. Have you been doing some work promoting that as well? Or? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, we've mostly been doing the 2012 Bonanza these past <laughs> couple of weeks because the Roland Emmerich film's coming out and we've, we've got a documentary that we've released about 2012. But yeah, we are also working on New World Order right now, which if you liked the films of John Ronson, mm -hmm. um, it's similarly, uh, it's similar in that it takes a sort of honest look at conspiracy subculture, except there's no... Um, there's no commentary in it. So you basically right. are getting a sort of uh, bird's eye view of what it's like for people like Jack McLam, Alex Jones, the 9-11 truthers in New York, and sort of what their, what their beliefs about mm. are about. So for some people, you'll watch this film and it will seem like you'll, you'll be all rah-rah. This film is all about these people. And other people will watch this film and think, wow, that's a bizarre and paranoid subculture. Yeah. Mm. So... Yeah, it's definitely, uh, I, I looked at it the first time around. I mean, obviously I'll go into this a bit more deeply in the review. The first sort of viewing of it, I was kind of, hmm, that's interesting. The second time around, it actually kind of, uh, yeah, I ended up looking at it as more of a, I guess, a social document than anything. It was really interesting, I thought. That's right, because, I mean, you got to think about it. Yeah, it may make you a little uneasy to watch it if you don't believe everything they say. But mm. if you were sitting there in the room with them, you'd be you would be equally as sort of uneasy. You're right. It's a social document. If you want to know what that subculture is about, the sort of that believes that there's a new world order coming, mm. this is a great contemporary version of that. We've also got uh, Move On the Movie and Rethink Afghanistan that are just coming out this month from Robert Greenwald, and we'll, we're um, distributing those. And uh, the new novel from Jim Mars, oh, Sisterhood yeah, yeah. of the Rose, which has... It's fictional, uh, isn't it? What'd you say? It's fiction, isn't it? It's, uh, it's fiction. It's, it's his first novel, and it has sort of occult Nazi World War II kind of themes to it so if you're interested in the occult world war ii occult nazis um and these sorts of story elements which i know are really popular among some of uh sitting down listeners uh you could check that out it's his first first crack at a novel but as we all know jim's a good writer so yeah. and, and if you'd ever like to have him on the show kim oh yeah know? we'll definitely have to have jim on the show he's one of those uh characters that i've uh, i just 
I haven't got around to asking yet. <laughs> so we, we will have him on there. Well, I'm let sure. me know, bud. Let me know. Okay, but anyway, yeah, we'll uh, see you guys next week. If you want to get in contact with me, uh, my email address is ken at sittingnow.co.uk. You can uh, follow us on Twitter, where uh, if anyone's been watching, there's been some uh, interesting accusations leveled at me. Uh, one being I'm a Satanist, which I thought was quite funny. Um, well, Ken, I've been to your house. Oh, that's and true. let me just tell everybody. He is the biggest Satanist that I have ever seen. Yeah. He has horns I growing do. out the top of his head, and he carries a pitchfork around <laughs> with him when he goes out in Brighton. Yeah, I, I do. And I, I have. It was just to protect himself from like unruly, drunken high school kids. No. But actually, no. It's it's a prop for his satanic cult. It's true. It's true. I do. Uh, I do follow the hoof-footed one as, as much as possible. Hoof-footed. <laughs> 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 is that what he makes you call him? Yeah, that's not that. Dark Master. No, no, no. no. I, th- I think it's awesome. If if you if if you're to the point in your career, Ken, where you're being accused of being a Satanist, <laughs> you are doing something right. Yeah, something's something's definitely right there. There's some mojo going on there. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, yeah. If you want to follow us and accuse me of being a Satanist, you can follow me on Twitter, which is twitter.com/sittingnow. We're on MySpace, myspace.com, sitting now. We've got everything covered pretty much, except Facebook. We need to do a proper Facebook group. But anyway, I'm off then. So uh, we'll see you guys next week. I think we've got Donald Michael Craig on the uh, on the show next week to talk to us about the Golden Dawn and uh, and his book Modern Magic, which is, uh, I think that's going to be a great show as well. He's an interesting character too. So yeah, we'll be that should be out next week, we hope. And uh, I'll put a post up on the site if you want to listen to it live again, like today. Um, but yeah, okay, we'll see you guys later. See you guys next week.